The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, good morning, church. Um, It is really, really good to be back with you and back in in here in the Advent um, season. Um, Listen, Advent is all about anticipation, all about anticipation, this expectation. Um, I was thinking about this all week, but in some ways, in a weird way, even the secular world, the very secular world around us, um, those who don't know, don't believe in Jesus, Right. Um, even the secular world around us understand and and even feels a bit of that expectation during the season. Like if you think about it, with uh, like the Santa and the presents and uh, the feeling in the air, the decorations, oh, the music, which in our house started before Halloween, believe it or not. Um, you have this buildup, right? This expectation, anticipation. It's crazy. And in some ways, like, we all get it. And, and, but here's the thing. Although the secular world feels that, I would argue that they also do not know the deeper significance of the very things they feel. Um, they know the feeling, yet know it incomplete, and, and this is why I think, um, this is going to sound like a huge downer this morning, but there's a letdown every Christmas. Because here's the crazy thing about Christmas. Every year, Christmas comes, the presents are, are opened, and it's done. And there is this, the day is done. And no matter how good the celebration is or gifts were great and family was awesome, like no matter what, um, there's this letdown because it's over. And uh, I really don't mean to be a downer. I, I'm sorry. Enjoy your Christmas. Please enjoy your Christmas. Enjoy the gifts. Enjoy the music. But what I am saying is that although the world understands the anticipation and expectation that we are talking about and feeling, um, without an understanding of the true object of our anticipation and expectation, without an understanding of our true object of our anticipation, it's incomplete. It just does not and cannot satisfy. And this is why I love, like, as the church, this is why we love this season so much. Because we know in full what the world only gets a taste of each Christmas. We know in full Christ that he came, that he's coming again, that he, we know that he came just as he was prophesied to come. And we know that he is coming again just as he is prophesied um, to do. We know he's coming again. And so this anticipation, it's incredible. It's like never ending Christmas as a follower of Jesus. Um, And I love each Advent, each Christmas season, we get reminded of this again and again, because we forget, but we get reminded of the truth that we have. We get reminded again, each in each season. So last week, we started into a brand new book as we got into Advent, into the book of Matthew. And Luis did a fantastic job of preaching one of the hardest texts um, that I, you know, poor, poor guy. And he... 
It's the best sermon I've ever heard on a genealogy. I will say that. It might be the only, but it was the best I have ever heard. It was so, it was incredible. And, and what I love is, is he pointed to this. He pointed to the genealogy of Jesus, King Jesus, and why it matters. Why it matters, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, why that matters. Jesus, who really came as he said he would, and as we're going to continue to see this morning, in a way that none of us could have ever imagined, in a way that was perfect and in the perfect plan of God. So last week, we saw the genealogy of King Jesus. This week, we get to look at the uniqueness of King Jesus the uniqueness of who he is. And um, I am going to settle in on one verse. Luis got 17. I get one. <laughs> Poor guy. He's going to hate me for this. Um, one verse and in Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew 1.18. So if you have your Bibles, would you open with me, scroll with me, you can get there. If you're following along with me in this and one of these, we're going to be on page eight. So you can open with me and, and get your place there. If you... Um, don't have a copy of this, by the way, please get it. Just, just get it. It's, it's stonicbible.com slash Matthew. You can grab it right back there. Um, we love this because one, um, this is our gift to you. We want to just give it to you. And we love giving you this. First reason, because we love giving away the word of God. That's kind of an awesome thing that we get to do as a church. But two, because it's a journal Bible. And so what that means is that throughout our time walking through this book, you'll be able to walk through it and, and dig deeper in your own study. You're going to be able to mark it up, follow along. And so we're giving these away. Go to the website. If you don't have it, get your copy uh, today um, from the back. But listen, I want to read our text. One short verse. That's it. Just one short verse. And yet, hear me. So much of our faith is built upon the truth of this one verse. That's why I'm going slow. Um, our understanding of who Jesus is so much is built on the understanding, the right understanding of this one verse. It's going to be a very theological sermon. I promise I'm not going to go into the weeds. I'm going to try my best not to go into the weeds on this, but this, is, this matters. It is significant. This is not a side thing. This is a central thing. Um, it's a powerful text. So I want to read it together first. And then we'll get to work. All right, Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All right. There are three important details that I want to pull out before we get to the meat, okay? Um, then the first is this, this is an historical account. You may hear that and you think, well, duh, uh, but it, it, it needs to be, it needs to be said again and again. What I mean is this is not a story or a folktale or a religious kind of, um, folklore or anything like that. This is an actual historical event. We saw last week as Luis walked us through genealogy, that Jesus really came from real people at a real place, in a real time, real event, in history, real. 
And he continues, if you look at our verse, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. What is that language for? This is language for the things I'm about to tell you. I'm going to give you an account of these things that really happened in real space, in real time, with real people, and it really happened in this way, really. This is a historical account. Second thing I want to pull out before we get to the meat is uh, Mary and Joseph are said to be betrothed. If you look, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So betrothal, uh, we don't typically use this word, but it's a promise made between a man and a woman for a promised future of marriage. You think engagement, right? Engaged to be married. It's very similar to our idea of engagement uh, with a few important details, okay? Uh, differences. First difference is um, in Jewish customs, a betrothal was legally binding. Your engagement was not. Um, in other words, you would need a, like a certificate of divorce to break off a betrothal. It was a commitment. It was not something you enter in lightly. You don't just break off the engagement because you ain't feeling it. Like you don't do that. It's a commitment that you, that you make with your intent to marry it's the first difference. Number two, I'm going to walk into this very timidly. <laughs> Not really. Uh, very carefully. That's a better word. Um, in Jewish customs, the second difference is that sexual relations outside of marriage and even cohabitation was not happening. And you hear that and you think, well, that you're religious. You're the religious people said, no, as it wasn't just the religious people who were saying, don't do this. It was as a Jewish people, the Jewish customs, you don't do that. It was um, cohabitation was not a thing back in these days. During the betrothal, you were not yet together. We'll get back to that and why that matters. The third thing. Um, this is a bit different from our engagement. In uh, Jewish customs, ancient Jewish, Jewish customs, the woman who was betrothed was often very, very young. Very, very young. Uh, most likely Mary would have been a teenager. And so this is different. This is different, but this is the context that we have here. And with all that in mind, we have this context. We have the marriage that was promised but has not taken place yet. You have these, this, this, this man, this, this young girl, engaged to be married. They were betrothed, which leads to the third thing that we're just going to state up front. It says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, without getting into the unnecessary specifics of this, this is about marital intimacy. Before they came together, before they consummated their marriage. Um, why was it before? Because they weren't married yet. Um, and as I mentioned before, Sexual relations before marriage, cohabitation, not a thing, not permitted till the marriage ceremony. So this text is very clear. They had not come together yet, okay? These are just baseline details. They're important. So follow with me, please. All right, so here we go. Take all this in. Real couple, engaged to be married, betrothed to be married, not together yet, but betrothed to be married, which makes the next line completely crazy and super problematic, she was found to be with child. I love that verbiage. We'll get to that. She's found to be with child. So you may have heard this story a hundred times, um, 
But for a moment, I want you to put yourself, you're engaged to be married, never been with your fiance, and there is a pregnancy. And again, um, betrothals, they're legally binding. We'd require some you know, divorce to break that thing off. But here's the thing, finding out your future fiance is pregnant is a worthy cause. It's worthy today. It was worthy then. It's a worthy cause. Um, it was sufficient reason. But in our text with this, I love the way Matthew phrases it. It is careful and it is incredible. He says Mary was found. Ha, huh, right? Ha, huh, found to be pregnant. Does not say Mary got pregnant. It's a more active way of saying that. Um, he could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he says Mary is found to be. That's a passive way of saying that. And it's more applicable. See, Mary was pregnant, but not like normal. She was found to be pregnant. Mary was with child. And Matthew is very clear about this. The child was Mary's. Mary was pregnant. But the child was not Joseph's or any other man. Because the final four words of our text is kind of where the meat hits. Changes everything and forms the foundation of our, so much of our faith. I'll read it again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. They had not come together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Not from Joseph, any other created man, but from God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, a commentator pulls this out and says this really well. It says, Matthew was careful to protect the virtue of Mary and the supernatural origin of Jesus. Both. This is huge. Mary, who was a virgin, was found to be pregnant. It was not that she was unfaithful to her fiancé. It's not that she acted out in sin. No, it was by the power of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, God himself. This was supernatural. And there has been a lot written to discredit what I just read. Um, there has been a lot, of, uh, a lot written throughout history that just says this is not possible. Um, with the rise of humanism and naturalism, there's this pushback against anything that's supernatural. Don't want to buy that. And so this whole thing, I've, if you read, has been often blamed by that this is just some pre-scientific superstition. Um, the, way you'll, the way you'll see it is uh, people saying, oh, those were just more primitive people back then. They believed in kind of those crazy things, those supernatural things. They don't understand what we know today. You'll see that. Um, but here's the crazy thing. Without getting into the weeds here, um, I think this is important to be said. I'm going to state real, just as obvious as I can. Even people in the first century knew and understood where babies came from. <laughs> right? Um, a commentator says, but even, in, even the relatively primitive stage of the first century science was sufficiently advanced for people to know that in order that in every other known instance, it required a biological father as well as a biological mother to produce a human child. You read lines like that and you're wondering, some commentator actually wrote that. It felt the need to have to write that. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's just insane. And he goes on to say, and I love this. He says, the Christian notion 
of the virgin birth, the virgin conception, was no more plausible in the first century Judaism than it is today in the 20th century Western world. Yet it has formed an integral part of Christian belief for 2,000 years. What he's saying here is important. It was a miracle then, and it's a miracle now in the same way. And this miracle forms the basis of our, of our Christian faith. Um, and I want to ask something. And this is really where we're going we're gonna to sit. Why does that matter? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus Christ was born of Mary? Why does it matter that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Why does that matter? I want to dig into this because, again, it is our foundation of our faith in so many ways. And sadly, so many have gotten this wrong and have missed this. And it leads to a weird, distorted gospel. It, weird, it leads to a misunderstanding of Christ. Um, and here's the thing. I, I, I'll say this again. This is a central issue. It's not a side issue. It's not one of those optional things that weird Christians believe. But it's okay if you don't believe that. We have a, no, this is central. One of the things that many have died for. Central to our understanding of the gospel. Not something you take or you leave. It matters. Why does it matter? Because our king, King Jesus, is the God-man. Two persons, the one and only God-man. We're going to unpack that. Matthew 1.18 is essential to understanding who Jesus is as the only God-man. Fully God and fully man, fully at the same time. I want to unpack this, and I want to do that by looking at two things, and this is where I promise I'm not going to, I'm going to go in the weeds. I won't be there for long, and they, they're meaningful weeds, okay? So just follow me here. Um, I want to look at two things so that we can understand why this matters. And I'll say this, you may have been in the church for all of your life. I don't take it for granted that we all know this and the simple truth of this. So I want to encourage us together as the church. Let's, let's lean into this. We look at two things. On the one hand, we need to understand the nature of sin. And on the other hand, we need to understand the nature of Christ. And I want to start with sin. The nature of sin. You hear that and you think, well, that's a really odd thing to talk about with this text, a Christmas text. But listen, it's central to understand. I think we can underestimate sin quite a bit. I had a seminary professor, and I'm going to use his words, and I'm going to tone him down a little bit because he got a little heated. I loved him. Uh, but I'll never forget what he would say. He would, he would always, you know, bang his, like, podium or, or the door. He was always by a door when he said this. And he said, um, you are thrice condemned. He's an encouraging professor, right? Um, you're thrice condemned. Apart from Jesus, you're thrice condemned. And he would say, you're a sinner by imputation. You're a sinner by nature, and you're a sinner by choice. You're thrice condemned. And he would always pound that into me. And he was right. What does it mean to be a sinner by imputation? Well, that means that the sin of Adam as our head was imputed to us. This is the language of, for example, Romans 5. It says, sin entered the world through one man. 
And death, he says, came with it. And so we are counted as sinful and feel the effects of sin through Adam's sin. I started with the controversial one because right now some of you might be saying, well, that's not fair. How, how did the sin of some dude so long ago have any bearing on me today? It sounds like a fair question. Many of you have probably asked that. If not asked it, you have felt that. It sounds like a fair question until you realize that the gospel itself is built on imputation. Here's what I mean. Just as sin was imputed to you through the one man, Adam, scripture is so clear that righteousness is imputed to you through Jesus Christ. To deny imputation and say that doesn't seem fair is to deny the understanding of the gospel that we have through Jesus. Let me give you um, Romans 5.17. Because for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Moving on just to uh, the next verse. It says, for as by one man's disobedient, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Amen. Amen. This is huge. This is, the gospel is all about imputation, double, double imputation. It's all about it. To deny imputation on one side is to fail to see imputation on the other side. So through Christ, we go from being in Adam to being in Christ. Amen. This matters. Apart from Christ, you're born into sin. Apart from Christ, you have sin handed down through and under Adam. In other words, apart from Jesus, you are born with a big old nasty negative in your bank account. A debt you could never pay. You're born that way. Because it was handed down to you through Adam. That's imputed sin. Come back. Let's go to the nature side. What about this sinner by nature? This is the, this is the thing. Every one of us have a propensity and a bend towards sin. Here's an example. I don't know your great-grandfather. But he was selfish. Um, and I know your grandfather was selfish too. And I know your dad was. I know you are. And here's the cool thing that every parent knows. When you have a kid, you don't even need to teach them. They come out of the box that way. Like pre-installed, they're selfish. Why is that? Because we are passing this down. Discipling through generations of what sin looks like. The psalmist gets to it when he says, uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're born toward this bend, this propensity toward sin. It's our nature is polluted by sin. Scripture often talks about this in terms of flesh and spirit. Walking in the flesh, walking in the spirit. You'll see this language all throughout. I could pick a lot of text, but I want to pull out Romans 8. It says, for those who live according to the flesh, sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
sinful nature, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what Paul in Romans is getting us to see. We are born in the flesh, children of Adam, children of our parents, and as such, we are sinners. That's two. We're thrice condemned. Let's hit three. Here we go. Choice, meaning every single one of us from the history of mankind ever, no exceptions, choose to sin. We choose to sin. We choose to walk in the flesh over the spirit. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We are sinners by imputation. We are sinners by our nature and we're sinners by our choice. Maybe an oversimplified way to see this and don't come talk to me after. This is oversimplified. I'm warning you, okay? Um, is you're a sinner because of Adam, you're a sinner because your parents and you're a sinner because of you. Thrice condemned, as he would say. Um, and here's the important thing. Any of those three, any one of those three, you are rightly condemned. The fact that any one of those are true about you rightly condemns you. And you got all three. You've got all three. That's why we can't save ourselves. This is why our condition, our situation apart from Jesus is so dire. Because those are true. The, the, the good news is only good when we understand how bad the bad news really is in church. The bad news is really bad. Thrice. It's the nature of sin, the extent of sin. And this is why, with that in mind, Matthew 1.18 matters. Because Matthew 1.18 talks to us about the virgin birth. Um, Spurgeon, he, he writes this. He says, the Holy Ghost wrought in the chosen virgin of the body of our Lord. Listen to what he says. There was no other way of his being born. Just no other way. Can't do it. He says, for if he had been, a, uh, been of a sinful father, how should he have possessed a sinless nature? He is born of a woman that he might be human, but not by man that he might be sinful. This is so incredible. See how the Holy Ghost cooperates in the work of our redemption by preparing the body of our Lord. This is so important. Jesus is more than just some great example for you and I to follow of how to live a great life. So much more than that. Now, yes, he is our example, but he is fundamentally so much more than an example. He is our king. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man, our only hope in life and death, our only savior from the reality of our sin. In and through Christ. Only Christ can conquer sin. All of it. Only Christ can save you from the reality that I have painted. And that scripture paints of you. Only Christ can conquer sin and the death that comes with it. On this side. I mean take this in. Because Jesus was born of a woman. 
um, Jesus was able to face the temptation of the flesh, the sin nature, the sin by choices. He was able to face that and get this, not sin. We, we see this in, in uh, Hebrews 4. It says, we have a great high priest. Uh, we don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here we do see Christ as our example, who faced temptation and who did not fall. Here we see in Christ, the one who conquers the sinful nature, the one who does not sin. Praise God that Jesus was born of a woman. Praise God that Jesus is fully man. And on this other side, praise God that Jesus is fully God. Praise God he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I'll put Spurgeon's quote. I'm not going to read it again, but I love that line. There's just no other way of his being born. There's no other way. Because Jesus was born outside of Adam's headship, Christ was not born of a man. He was fully God without the imputed sin that was passed down. So if you think about this, it, your sin is so great and Jesus conquered it. You were thrice condemned and Christ, fully God, fully man, the God-man king, overcame sin. All three of those buckets. Imputed sin, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He conquered that. What about sin nature? He faced that temptation. Sin actions? No, he faced the temptation without sin. Without sin. When we have a puny view of sin, we have a puny view of Jesus. And when we understand the vastness of our sin, then we understand the vastness of Jesus. And in Matthew 1.18, this is why the virgin birth matters. This is why Spurgeon says there just isn't any other way that this could have happened. If you understand your sinful condition, there's just no other hope other than Jesus and there's no other way of Jesus coming into this world but being born of a virgin. And this is why for thousands of years, the church has stood by and recited the Apostles' Creed. And one of the significant lines, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of God, born of Mary, fully God, fully man. And this gets us to the second thing. So on the one hand, we got to start with understanding the nature of our sin. Um, we need to, this is why we dig into it. Thrice condemned. Jesus is our only hope. The God, man, king is our only hope to conquer sin. But the second part of this, on the other hand, is we need to understand the nature of Jesus Christ. As the God, man, Jesus Christ is the one and only. He was unique in who he is. Unique in his nature. There have been so many who have dis or tried to discredit Jesus in so many ways. Um, as not being a man. He was just some like God who came down and, and he wasn't a man. Or others who say, you know, he was just a man, but then God kind of overtook him for a little bit. And then he, or you have others who say he was just a man, you know, he's just a really good dude, really good teacher. You got a lot of ways to, to, that people have tried to puzzle this out. And um, there have been so many, by the way, cults and false teachings and false belief systems that stem off of this. 
Many have tried to puzzle this out. In fact, if you were to pick up a book on church history, I would argue any book that you pick up in church history, especially the early, you're gonna realize that the first several hundred years of church history was dedicated and centered around this. Who is Jesus? Fully God, fully man. This is like the thing, like, I'm, I'm serious. It blew me away. If you pick up any church history book, this is all they talked about. They didn't talk about the end times, creation, spiritual gifts, uh, the role of women in ministry, all the hot buttons that we, Calvinism, we, they didn't talk about any of those. What did the early church care about the most? This, the God-man Jesus Christ. This was it. This was the center who Jesus is. And um, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a, a good old uh, fancy pants theological word. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make it a game. If you can work this word into your Christmas celebrations, don't tell him, just work it in naturally. Let me know. You win, all right? Here's the word. Hypostatic union. <laughs> if you work that in, you have to tell me. Um, it sounds pretty cool. It's a cool, cool sounding word. It's not really as fancy as it sounds, uh, but it's important. Hypostatic union is a word that the church has used for centuries to explain and teach what I just talked about. The two natures of Jesus. Um, hypostatic is a weird word that we don't use anymore, but it finds its root in Greek and in Latin. It simply means person or persons. Told you, it's not as fancy of a word as you would want it to be when it sounds that cool. And then the other word is union. We still use that word, union, right? Um, and so what this means is it's the term that the church has used to describe the two persons of Jesus united. Two united. Fully God, fully man. Um, I want to quote, um, give a definition that I found from John Piper. And John Piper, say what you will about the man, he is really good at quick one-liners. His definitions are spot on, all right? This is one of them, so good. The hypostatic union, he says, is the mysterious joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. Simple. This is what you're going to try to work into your Christmas celebrations, right? It's simple. It's the mysterious union joining of the divine and human in the one person of Jesus. Two natures, one person. I want to be very careful. I am not saying 50-50. I'm not saying 50% God, 50% man. Join it, makes 100. Nah, no. No. Um, I'm also, I'm not saying he's part man, part God. Um, I'm also, at the same time, not saying that Jesus was two persons. Like you have the, the, the God over here and you have the dude over here. Not saying that. Fully God, 100% God, fully man, 100% man, fully united in one person, the mysterious joining of the divine and the human and the one person of Jesus. Now, you might hear all this and sound, well, that sounds like a bunch of semantics, like a bunch of weird things that weird theologians talk about, like how many angels fit on the tip of a pen or whatever argument you want to do. Sounds pointless. It's not. Church, it is not. I mean, this is central because as fully man, 
born of the Virgin Mary, as fully man, Jesus was able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. As humans, he put on flesh. The word put on flesh dwelt with us. He, was, he, he knows what it's like to be human and, and to experience humanity. In other words, think about this. Jesus knows what it's like. Have you ever lost someone you love? Like, so did Jesus. He wept. He knows what that's like. Jesus knows what it's like to experience the full weight of being a human. He knows And he was able to conquer temptation and sin and live the life that you and I, we can never live. Jesus is the new and the better Adam as we sing in the old hymn that we sing. I could read so many scriptures, but you just can't beat Hebrews 4, so why try? Um, Just paints this incredible picture of Christ as the high priest, the great high priest, who not only does the work of sacrificing for our sins, priests do that, but who sympathizes with us in our weakness and understands, says... Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why does that matter? It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Because Jesus was a man, he is gentle and lonely in heart. He cares for you and your need and your weakness. He understands. Because Jesus was a man, he was able to conquer sin and provide a way for us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And on the other side, as fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is able to pay the eternal penalty for your sin. Jesus is able to pay the debt. Jesus is able to stand in the gap. When God is perfectly holy and you are Not, it is only Christ who can stand in the middle and bridge this gap. It is only Christ who can be the perfect sacrifice. It is only Christ who can be the perfect substitute. Going back to Hebrews, look what it says. For every high priest, or every priest, stands daily at his service. So he's going back to the Old Testament. These priests offered services daily, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. He goes on and says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, church, Jesus is the great high priest who offered a sacrifice for your sins that was perfect and complete and needing of no other. Because unlike any other high priest, the great high priest Jesus offered himself. The sacrifice was perfect. And why was it perfect? Because he was fully God. Jesus Christ is the God man. I want to quote one more person who's smarter than me. One more commentator says this. His father, in essence, was God through the work of the Holy Spirit. His mother was the fully human woman, Mary. 
As fully God, Jesus was able to pay the eternal penalty for our sins. We're going to see more of that in verse 21, just a few verses down in Matthew. For which finite humanity could not atone. As fully human, he could be our adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. This is why Matthew 18 matters. This is why it matters that Jesus Christ is fully man born of Mary and fully God born of the Holy Spirit. This is why it matters. There is no one else like our God. There is none other like Jesus Christ. None. And this Christmas, we get to be reminded of this. And I'll I'll paint this picture again. You have God who is perfect and holy all the time, righteous and just and amazing in all of his ways. And then we have me and you, sinners, thrice condemned sinners, sinners by imputation, sinners by nature, sinners by choice, fully, completely, utterly condemned. It reminds me in uh, Job's suffering in the Old Testament, in Job 9, Job is in the middle of his suffering, and Job makes this cry. He says, oh, if only there was an arbiter between us who could put his hand on us both. It's Job 9:33. I love that cry because what he is crying for is the reality that we now have in Christ Jesus, the arbiter who is able to, God here, humanity here. I, our only hope, our only salvation is in the one who bridges. There's no one else, nothing else that can atone for our sin. This is why scripture says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In a very real sense, and I want you to hear this as we think about the coming king this Christmas. Our king did not come to simply just conquer and kick around all the enemies of God. All the sinners like you and me. Praise God that our king came to give himself to save the enemies of God. The sinners like you and like me, and invite us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is our king, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And our call this morning, our call this Advent is to look to the king, to trust him and him alone, to place our faith in him and him alone. He came, he is coming again, and he is our only hope in life and death. He is our joy, our salvation, our eternity. He is the God-man king conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is our king.